0: So here we go. We are in Joshua chapter 7. If you have a Bible, we are in Joshua chapter 7. If you need a Bible, if you just want to slip your hand up, uh, we'd love to be able to, uh, to give uh, put one of these into your hand. Uh, Joshua chapter 7 is going to be page 157. You know, as we begin to look at this, Moses, years before the Israelites moved into the promised land, he described this promised land as a land of hills and valleys. And, you know, when we think about the Israelites, we think about what they knew. They knew Egypt. Egypt was a flat and kind of monotonous land. And so when when Moses gave this description of the promised land, it was a contrast to anything they had ever known. It's kind of like if you've ever lived in the Midwest where it's just flat and nothing. And then you come out to the great Pacific Northwest, God's country out here. You look and you say, man, this is a beautiful place. This is so much better than where we were. And that's kind of where the Israelites are. But, you know, when, when Joshua described the land as being a land of hills and valleys, it also becomes a description of the life of faith that is pictured by Israel's experiences in Canaan. I mean, by faith, uh, we claim our inheritance in Christ, yet in our relationship with Christ, in, 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 our, in our faith— we have these, these, these hills and these valleys. We have these mountaintop experiences that are great and wonderful, but then we also have discouragement, and we have valleys. And it's almost as if the, the mountaintop experiences wouldn't be possible without the valleys. Chapter 7 begins with this uh, crazy word called but. It's a big word called but. It's a big but. But. And chapter 7 is going to signal that things are going to change. You see, so far throughout the the, the book of, of Joshua, so far throughout our story, we've seen the people of Israel, uh, they have completely been victorious at everything they've done. They've been victorious in crossing, into, uh, in crossing the Jordan River. They've been victorious into entering the Promised Land. They've been victorious in their dealings with God at Gilgal. They've been victorious in the battle at Jericho. But the big butt comes in. And so while the story has been a story of success, of mountaintop experiences, of blessings, of joy, here in chapter 7, we're going to see something completely different. We're going to see the people of Israel in complete retreat. We're going to see Joshua, who is the strong and courageous leader who we can look up to and said, Man, I'd love to be like him. I'd love to be like him. We're going to see him on his face before God, filled with dismay. We'll see that they go from the mountaintop experience at Jericho to the valley of discouragement at Ai. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we are uh, ready just to open up your word, God, I pray that you would put the distractions out of our mind. I pray that you would allow us to focus in here for the next 35 minutes or so, that we would hear not just from the pastor, but God, we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would set me aside and that you would be the one who speaks today and speaks now. Lord, I pray for your spirit to rest on every one of us that we would hear what it is that you have for us today. Lord, that you would continue to draw us to yourself. Lord, we ask this in your holy and precious and perfect name. Amen. As we're talking through some of these spa- th- these places, I want you to get a picture for where they are. So we've got a map up here. Uh, if we can show that map I want you to see, you can't really see, but right here where I'm pointing, this is Gilgal. This is where they started out. And uh, as they move forward, you'll see Jericho. And right here, you kind of see that little spot right there. That's where I was. And you notice there's mountains all around it. So I was a place um, about 15 miles from Jericho. And it was situated a couple thousand feet above sea level. It was a place that you went up into. In fact, as you look at the conquering of, of the promised land, this was an important location because all of the roads would have come through either Jericho or Ai. So Ai so was the next strategic place to conquer. And the Jewish army, they marched up confidently up the hill, but soon we're going to find them coming, at, coming down again, fleeing for their lives, and leaving 36 comrades dead in the field. So we're going to look at—we're going to go through—we've got six different sections of this chapter. We're going to look at one by one, and um, we'll go from there. Would you follow along as I read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7? 1 through 5, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethhaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from where the people uh, went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them down before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. See, the first thing we're going to see, the first section of this this chapter, is we're going to see disaster for Israel. We're going to see Israel in defeat. Now, when we read these first these few verses, we begin to wonder, well, what happened? I mean, what what caused them to come into defeat? Something must have been terribly wrong. I mean, didn't we read in chapter 1, didn't we read that God told Joshua, be strong and courageous? We read that God told Joshua, fear not, for I am with you wherever you go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in fact, God said to Joshua, he said, every place that the sole of your foot will tread, Upon, I have given you that land. So we hear these promises and we read that the Israelites now are on retreat after the attack at Ai. We read of 36 soldiers who were killed in battle. And we have to look and we have to say, something went wrong. Something isn't right here. You know, and as we start reading through these verses, we can begin to find maybe some possible reasons as to why they were defeated at Ai. I mean, you look at verses 3 and 4. Verses three and four says, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, "Do not have all the people go up, but only let two or three thousand men go and attack. I don't make a, don't make the whole people go up there, for there are only a few." So Joshua sent about three thousand men. I mean, it would be easy for us to look at those verses and say, "Well, I know why Israel was defeated. They were overconfident." They had too much self-confidence in themselves. They said, hey, that's a small city. You know, we just conquered Jericho, and I, that's just a little city. That's like Selah compared to Yakima. You know, we don't need to send the whole army up there. And and so we could say, hey, the reason that they were defeated was because they were too self-confident. And you know that preach as well, right? I mean, on Father's Day, we could stand up here and we could preach, hey, you know, don't be self-confident or you'll go into defeat, and we'll feel really good about ourselves and walk out feeling good. That would be one idea, one reason possibly for why Israel failed. Or you could read verse 2. In verse 2 it says that Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, and said, go up and spy out the land. And the men went out and spied up the land. You see, it's quite clear, Joshua, in these verses, you never see Joshua praying to God. you never seeing Joshua say, hey God, what is it you want us to do next? I mean, last week, when we looked at Jericho, we saw how central and how key the, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, was to their victory in Jericho. Remember, we saw it ten times in that chapter, where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, was so important to them defeating Jericho. So here's Joshua. Man, he, he's, he's flattered with the victory at, jo, uh, at Jericho. And now he immediately makes plans to go and capture the next portion of the territory And we notice in these verses, there's no praying to God. There's no ark. Perhaps if Joshua would have dropped to his knees before going to Ai, then maybe, perhaps, he would never have to be humbled in the dust after they were defeated in the city of Ai. You know, we could preach that, and that would preach well. We could preach and say, men, we gotta, we, gotta we got to pray. we we got to pray more. Our lack of prayer is a problem in our lives, and we're going to walk away. We'll, we'll spend some time at the end of our service, and we'll pray, and men will feel really good, and we'll walk out of here, and, yeah, hoorah, I feel good, right? But you see, the reason that we can't necessarily preach those things is they may preach well. They may sound very good. But when we're looking for the reason of Israel's defeat, the writer has already given us the theme for the defeat. He put it as bookends in this chapter, in verse one and in verse 26. In verse one, in verse one, he wrote, the author writes. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For the son of for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebeda, he took some things, some of the devoted things. And here you need to underline this. It says, And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And we look in verse twenty six and we see the same thing, and it says they raised over him a great heap of stones that there remains to this day. And then we see it and it's underline this as well. It says, Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. You see, the theme of both of these verses, the theme that they're setting for the entire chapter of 7, is the burning anger of God towards sin. This whole chapter has to be understood in light of God's burning anger. Verses 2 through 4, where we can look and say there's a lot of good preachable things in there, they they can't be the reason for the defeat because they have to be viewed in light of verse 1. Israel's defeat was not because of self-confidence or a lack of prayer. they may That might have been involved in, in, in their defeat, but we can't preach them with authority from this text because the text says that the Israelites failed and were defeated because they were under God's wrath. Now, we can't overlook or trivialize the burning anger of God because it's uncomfortable or because it makes us begin to fear God. You see, God's wrath isn't just a theme in this text. It's something that our church and every one of us should tremble under, the wrath of God, the anger of God. What makes us think that Israel is the only congregation, the only nation who has been or is under the wrath of God? What makes us think that only those people are under God's wrath and that God's wrath wouldn't come upon even us? So God's burning anger led to this disaster and this defeat for Israel. And read verses, uh, the next section, 6 through 9 with me. It says, That Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this upon us? Uh, this, this people over the Jordan River at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us, we, would, we, would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? See, there isn't much difficulty in understanding Israel's dilemma. Their defeat at Ai was a shock. It was completely unexpected. They had been standing on the promises of God. They've experienced God's blessing time and time and time again. And now this. Their hearts melted as they anticipated their own destruction. And Joshua and the leaders, it says that they grieve for an entire day all the way into the evening. And, and a little bit confused, Joshua finally speaks in verse 7, and he prays, and he says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan River at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites? He says, Maybe it would have been better for us to stay on the other side of the Jordan River, not even in the Promised Land. Maybe it would have been better for us to stay over there. Now let me remind you of something. You and I, we have the benefit of knowing verse 1. The author has given us verse 1. Joshua, he didn't have the knowledge that we have in verse 1 about the burning anger of God. And so before we jump all over Joshua for this prayer, and we say, Joshua, you lack faith. Joshua, you don't believe in God. We need to understand he doesn't have this advantage that we do. And he's left perplexed as to what's happening. And these words, they almost seem rather harsh, and they sound very similar to the uh, words of unbelief and rebellion that the older generation of Israelites that they had when they came out of Egypt. Remember, when they came out of Egypt, and they're looking at the hardships of having to travel, and they complained to Moses, they complained to Aaron and said, oh, why would God bring us out of Egypt? Why have you, Moses, why have you let us out of Egypt so we die in the wilderness? We would have been better to remain as slaves in Egypt. Remember, that was the sin that they were in trouble for that caused them not to enter into the promised land. But I want you to see that these words that Joshua cries these are words of despair not unbelief the old israelites they never directed their concerns to god rather they complained about god in unbelief and they complained about god to moses and to aaron and to the leaders but here we see Joshua he's crying out to god in despair crying out to god And sharing your concerns and your complaints to God is is hugely different than complaining about God to other people. There's a huge difference between what the Israelites were doing and what Joshua is doing here. And in this perplexity, in this confused state, Joshua, he makes one basic appeal in his prayer. His argument in verse 9 involves the peril of Israel and the honor of God. He says, Is- Israel's foes, they're going to destroy us from the earth. And Joshua prays, they will cut off our name. And Joshua asks God, he says, what, God, will you do for your honor? Because if we, if we perish and we're completely defeated, it will reflect on your reputation, God. Now, I know some of you are super spiritual, and you begin to look at this and you say, Well, that's kind of arrogant for him to pray towards God. You can't talk to God like that. I mean, you can't pray to God. That doesn't seem like an argument that we should be making with God. But Matthew Henry, who was an old English preacher, he wrote a verse by verse commentary of the Bible, and he says, he says this, he says, We cannot urge a better plea than this. Then Lord, what will you do for your great name? He says, let God and all be glorified and then welcome his whole will. You see, there are times, there are times when the people of God stand perplexed, stand confused, just like Joshua and the Israelites, confused as to what God is doing, not understanding why this is happening, and they're left perplexed, and we're left with nothing more than what Joshua has, an anguished prayer to a mystifying God. Pleading both our danger and pleading both for his honor. We move on to verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They have turned their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. He says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. See, here we see the divine revelation of the problem. The divine revelation of the problem. Here, God reveals the problem they are facing. Now, there's a couple of things that we have to notice about these couple of verses. Notice the plural aspect on identifying these sins. Look at, look, look at these. Verse 11, God writes, Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. It says, they have transgressed. It says, they have taken some of the devoted things. It says, they have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. And in verse, in verse 1 of this chapter, we read, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now, when I read this, I begin to wonder, and I say, Well, I thought Achan was the one who sinned. I thought, verse 1 says, Achan is the one who took some of the devoted things. So why do we see all this pluralness? You see, the verdict from heaven was not that Achan had sinned, but rather that Israel as a whole was responsible for the sin. One man failed, but the whole army was defeated. You see, the children of Israel—they were one nation. They were brought to redemption as one man, and all of them were completely one complete entity. And God was dealing them, dealing with them as a corporate body, through whom His purposes for men were to be fulfilled. And I know we live in, in this modernistic, twenty-first century individualistic society. And we look and say, well, it's not fair. It's not fair that one man sins, yet the whole nation is going to be punished for that. You see, it was this one man sin, so why does everybody have to be punished? And we might even complain and say, God, you're not a very fair God. God, you're kind of mean. But I'll tell you, we would be better to fear God rather than complain about him here. We would be better to fear because one man's sin turned away God's presence from a whole group of people. We would, do, we would do better to fear God because a man's whole household was drawn into his punishment. I know in our modern day politically correct society, we have these tame views of sin. And we don't ever recognize the, the contagious power of sin around us. And did you notice the, the, th- the main threat of God's wrath in verse 23, or excuse me, in verse 12? He says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. See, nothing, nothing is more crucial for God's people than God's presence. That is supposed to be the thing that our, every one of us wants more than anything else is God's presence. And rightfully, nothing should disturb God's people more than the potential of God himself removing himself from their lives. And for Israel, retaining God's presence would come at a costly affair. Destructive judgment must take place, and the presence of God is going to continue to be among them. I want you to see that even though God is burning anger, even though God is dealing with his sin in in a in, in, a, in a burning anger for anger angry way, I want you to see that God is still a God of mercy. I want you to see God's mercy in this threat. He says, "I will be with you no more" in verse twelve, but then he says, "Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you." You see, God in His mercy, He offers a way of restoration. He offers a way to restore the relationship between God and his people. I mean, this is what God does. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of burning anger, and there is an anger towards sin, but there's also the fact that God is a God of mercy. So what's the solution? What is the solution that God gives? Verses 13 through 15. It says, get up, consecrate the people, And say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes... Uh, by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. So here God's instructions are to consecrate yourselves. Prepare yourselves spiritually because this sin must be exposed in order for God's presence to be restored. God says you won't be able to stand before your enemies until this sin is exposed, until these devoted things are destroyed. He says, you won't be able to stand before your enemies. This was a result of the threat that God had made. He said, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Now we've called this series in Joshua, we've called it, Be Strong. Being, but being strong doesn't mean that we rely on ourselves. It doesn't mean that we fight on our own strength. Israel, they wouldn't be able to stand before their enemies Without God's presence. Because it doesn't matter how wise and smart Joshua is. It doesn't matter how strong their army is. It doesn't matter what, what, what weapons their army has. They would not be able to stand before their enemies without God's presence. Because it is in God's presence that we are made strong. Being strong means that we lean into God's strength. That we lean into Him and He leads us. And we rest in His power and in His strength. So Joshua says, uh, so God says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to bring the, the the tribes out one by one. Then we're going to bring the clans out. Then we're going to bring the families out. And finally, we'll bring out the men one by one. And I will identify the man who brought the sin into the camp. Verses 16 through 23 tell that story. It says, so Joshua rose early in the morning. and He brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, he said, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and gave praise to him. Now tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 500 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with a silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. See, the fifth section is Israel is before God. And we're going to see the exposure of this sin. The casting of lots revealed that Achan, who was a son of one of the most prestigious families in Judah, it was he who had violated the Lord's command. And once he's exposed, he lays it all out. He says, he says I saw these things, and I, and I coveted them, and I, and I took them. You see, God at this point wasn't enough for Achan. This, this cloak of Shinar, it was something that, that was very fancy, and it represented, uh, it represented uh, s- uh, status. It was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of influence. For Achan, God wasn't enough. He wanted the power. He wanted the influence. He wanted the wealth. And he put these things above God and said, you know, God, you're not enough. You know, you're great, but I want these things more than you. So I'm going to disobey you so I can get these things. And notice, and notice what he calls these dedicated things that were supposed to, be, supposed to belong to God. In verse 21, he calls them spoils. Is that what God called them? No, God called them the devoted things. God said, these are things that belong to me. And here, Achan, he kind of reclassifies them and says, well, they're not really the devoted things. They're just the spoils of war. I mean, isn't this what we do? We reclassify our sin. They weren't the devoted things, they were the spoils of war, and we do the same thing. You know, instead of calling it, uh, instead of calling it adultery, we say we just had an affair, or we had an extramarital relationship, and we take our sin and we reclassify it so it doesn't sound so bad. Isaiah wrote in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The last section, verses 24 through 26, says, And Joshua and all of Israel with him, they took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble upon you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. and They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. See, I want you to see that that not merely was Achan affected by his sin, but I want you to see that his whole family, his livestock, his possessions, they all experience this extreme penalty. And notice in verse 25, notice that it says all of Israel was involved in this punishment, not just Joshua himself. The reason for the severity of this sin is that his selfish actions have placed the entire nation in jeopardy. Achan's actions brought the entire nation under God's curse. They experienced this defeat because of his sin. And so his sin doesn't just affect himself. Yes, Achan's sin was great. Yes, his punishment was severe, but it certainly fits the crime. See, we would do well to never underestimate the amount of damage that one person can do outside of the will of God. We would do well to never underestimate the amount of damage that one person can do outside of the will of God. Abraham, in Genesis chapter twelve, his disobedience in Egypt almost cost him his wife. In in Jonah chapter one, Jonah's refusal to obey God almost sank a ship. And in and in in Second Samuel chapter twenty four, David's disobedience in taking uh, an unauthorized census led to the death of over 70,000 Israelite people. Never underestimate the damage of one person's sin. The great irony in all of this is if we look forward to chapter 8, in chapter 8, God allows the Israelites to take anything they wanted from the city of Ai once it fell. I mean, if Achan would have waited just a few more days, he could have gone and taken anything he wanted from I, if he just would have obeyed God and left the things that were devoted to God in Jericho alone. So how do we wrap this up? You know, this has kind of been a rush through, a drive-through, real quick story. How do we wrap this up? This is Father's Day. And, you know, I probably would have done well to talk to some of the more experienced men here. Jim Herring, I know, he's a guy I look up to. I probably would have been good to say, hey, Jim, what do you do on Father's Day? You know, because I think what happens is most Father's Day messages are supposed to be feel good, you know. It's supposed to be the kind of day where where fathers, you're doing great, keep it up, hoorah. Fathers go home, feel good, and they barbecue their steak, and and, and they feel good about themselves. But, you know, I'm going to do something a little different today. This applies to every one of us in here. This applies to you, whether you are a mother, whether you are a father, whether you're a daughter, whether you're a, a son, whether you're a grandma, a grandpa, whether you're an employee, whether you're an employer, whether you're a leader in the church, whether you're just a, a, a member in the church. This applies to every one of us. But I want to talk specifically to the men in here. One of my greatest fears as a pastor is that my sin or my insecurities or my faults will lead to God's spirit and God's presence and God's blessing leaving this church. It haunts me to think of the fact that, that, that my sin would cause this church to be stagnant or this church to die or God's presence to leave this church because of me. And I know the Hebrews 13 says that one day, I will give an account for how I lead this church. My overwhelming fear is that my sin and my faults would keep God from blessing this church and keep God from growing this church and keep God from uh, allowing more people to come to know Christ and to make Christ known all over this city. Men, do 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 you realize that your family, your home is your first church? That is your church. You are called as the leader of your family. You are your family's first and primary pastor. I'm a resource to you. The church is a resource to you. But that home, that family is your church. You are their spiritual leader. You are responsible for them. I don't know if you're sitting there saying, well, I didn't sign sign up for that. I didn't realize that coming in. You are their spiritual leader. And I don't know how many of you have had dads who've been great dads, who were always there, always always like the dads in the show or dads in the video that are, you know, always taking you to Disneyland and always working hard. Or maybe you had the dad who wasn't a very good example. Maybe you had the dad who was never around, who was absent. Let me just ask, I can raise your hand, how many of you have been affected by your father's sin? How many of you can say, I've got dad issues because of what happened to me while I was growing up? The reality is, there are so many people around us with these kind of dad issues. Because of what dad didn't do, because of what dad did do, we have dad issues. Men, can you imagine what it have been going through Achan's little children's minds as they're being brought out to be stoned? Can you imagine his little girl and his little boy looking up at dad as the stones are getting ready to be thrown because of what their dad did? Can you imagine what their little kids are thinking? Don't you dare take your sin for granted. Don't you dare believe that your sin is just yours and it doesn't have an effect on those around you. Don't you dare let your faults and your bad habits be things that you just tolerate and you just say, well, that's just the way I am. It's not my fault. It's just, it's just the way I was created. Don't you dare let that become your excuse. Granted, you probably won't be called out in front of the church to have you and your family stoned. But men, your sin, whether they are sins of commission, things you do, or whether they are sins of omission, things you never do, Conversations you never have, lines you never draw, they will affect your family. They will affect their future. They will affect the outcome of their life. They will affect whether your kids choose to follow Christ or not. Men, every time you pursue your own self-glory, every time you covet what you don't have, every time you worship comfort instead of following after God, Every time you refuse to sacrifice. Every time you blow up in anger. Every time you lead lead in your pride. Every time you refuse to lead as a loving husband. Every time you refuse to love your children. Every time you refuse to love your neighbor. Man, every time you're unwilling to forgive. Man, every time you click on that secret pornography site on your phone or on your computer. Man, every time you permit your daughter to dress immodestly, every time you have a hard day, and instead of coming home and turning to God for comfort and strength, you turn to the bottle in the fridge. Every time you live as though your life, every time you live your life as though God isn't enough and ultimate. Despite what you say in your words, your actions will speak louder than that. And then not only will it destroy yourself, but it will have an effect on your family. Can you imagine standing before God, looking at the story of your kids' lives, and saying, man, this was because of my choice here. This was because of the way I treated my wife here. This was because I wasn't willing to draw the line in the sand. This was because I allowed sin in my life. Can you imagine There's an author by the name of Tim Challies, and he says this, he says, Sometimes the greatest gift that fathers can give to your family is a silent and hidden decision to refrain from pursuing sin. Men, the bar is set high. Our lives and our choices and our sin, it will have an effect on our families. And, and, and the cost, the stakes are ultimate. Man, the stakes are ultimate for our families. And I fear, I fear that my sins and my failure, I fear that my family will suffer and even be destroyed because I don't want to deal with hard things. Because it's easy to gloss it over instead of doing hard things. But I'm thankful that God is a God of mercy. That even in the midst of God's burning anger towards your sin and towards my sin, God is still a God of mercy. And he knows, dads, that we won't be perfect. Dads, he knows that we will fail. He knows that we will mess up. And this is why, men, if we're going to lead our families, we have to continually look to the cross time and time and time again. We have to show our families that, yes, when we sin, we take it to the cross. We humble ourselves before God. We repent. You know what repent means? It means to acknowledge that we were wrong. And it means that we take responsibility for our sin. We repent and we seek God's grace and we walk in God's strength and in God's power. Because this is how we become strong. Men, I don't care what your paycheck is. I don't care how much you can deadlift. I don't care how strong you think you are. Men, being strong doesn't mean that you have all the answers. It doesn't mean that you put this picture of being a perfect dad. It doesn't mean that you lead as a dictator. It means that we walk under the shadow of the cross. It means that we show our kids what it means to confess our sin. We show our kids what it means to struggle and to repent and pursue God, even when it's difficult. It means that we don't make excuses for our sin. It means we show our kids how to come onto the cross, under the shadow of the cross, and say, Kids, God is worth it. God is worth it. I would invite you this morning to respond to God with me. Every one of us needs to respond differently today. Maybe you need to spend some time and just humble yourselves before God. Repent of your sin. Because it's a humbling thought to think that your sin and my sin would have an effect on our families. That your sin and my sin would have an effect on this church. We need to humble ourselves before God. Say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for my attitude. I'm sorry for what I haven't done. My sins of omission. Maybe you need to praise God through worship. Maybe you just need to praise God that he is a God of mercy. And even though we fail, he's still great. And we can still surrender our lives to him. And he's worth our our, our praise and our worship. And man, I want to challenge you to do something today. We've got the communion tables up here. Man, I want to challenge you to lead your families in communion today. I want to challenge you not just to say, hey, this is communion. This is what we do at church every so often. Man, I want you to come up, and I want you to take the communion elements, and I want you to hand them to your wife. I want you to hand them to your kids. I want you to set the example of what it means to observe communion. See, Jesus instituted the, the uh, act of communion on the night he was betrayed. He said his bro- the broken bread represented his body that was broken for us on the cross. The cup and the juice, they represent the new covenant between God and people. That through the shedding of Jesus' blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. Paul describes communion as an act of worship. As a way that we remember Jesus, we remember his sacrifice for us. And the instruction that Paul gives for communion is that we are to examine our lives, we're con- to confess our sins before God. Men, can we do that? Can we be strong enough to tell our wives, to tell our kids, I'm not perfect? I've got my issues, but I'm gonna humble myself, I'm gonna repent. And kids, this is a picture of what it is. This is a picture of standing under the cross, of what Jesus has done for us. Because, men, that's how we become strong. Not by being a dictator. Not by having all the answers. We become strong by, by living under the shadow of the cross. By living under the gospel. Would you pray with me?